Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash spoken today. Welcome to heaven. This is Under Consultation, an episode-by-episode podcast-type situation through the UK's greatest video game challenge TV show, Games Master. I am one of your hosts, Luke Owen, the Pamela Anderson of podcast hosts. And chalking up my tip, not because Luke is the Pamela Anderson of podcast hosts, I am Ash Versus. This episode aired on the 30th of November 1995, FIFA 96 and Tekken atop the console charts. Robson and Jerome are still top of the pops, but we've got a new number one at the top of the UK box office. Maybe someone should make a game out of this. It's Goldeneye. When the world is the target. 72 hours ago, a secret weapon system was detonated over seven hours. And the threat is real. Goldeneye exists. A radiation surge that destroys everything with an electronic circuit. You can still depend on one man. I want you to find Goldeneye. Three. Find who took it. Two. And stop it. One. The name's Bond. James Bond. So you had the ropey couple of Dalton movies, which I like in retrospect. I think they're actually perfectly fine Bond movies. And then you had a bit of a break. They went on vacation. And now, boom, the guy they originally wanted to be Bond, but was too busy being Remington Steele, is now Bond, but technically still kind of playing Remington Steele. It's Pierce Brosnan at the beginning of his run, and many would argue, probably quite rightly, the height of his run. I would say, yeah, this is easily the best of the Bronholm run. Um, like, I quite like Bronholm as as um, Bond, but it is... He has some duffers in this. I, and it's never really his fault. He is just a victim of late 90s, early 2000s blockbuster cinema, and James Bond's trying to work out how they fit into this new style of cinema and not really 
ever fully achieving it. Goldeneye is a fantastic movie. It really is great. I've got a bit of love for Tomorrow Never Dies, but I, you know, later on, you know, towards the end of his run, it really is some of the dirt worst that Bond has to offer. I mean, Goldeneye, uh, it was, I think, the first of their films not to use, like, any elements, even, like, like from a Fleming novel or storyline or back of a fag packet notes or anything like that. It was completely original. But the notes of the film, the notes of the storyline, it's same old, same old for Bond. It's like, oh, look, there's, oh, there's sneaky Russians over there and, oh, there's a big weapon and a megalomaniac and a Bond girl. It, it was Bond by numbers, but very well executed. The most original twist it really offered was the whole 006 thing. Sean Bean dying twice. And it was just incredibly well executed. We were also still kind of like at the tail end of practical effects. And there were some really, really nice, like kind of model shots and work in this one. But then you mentioned Tomorrow Never Dies. And uh, I don't know if we even touch on it, if it's still within our future. But I'm a big fan of Tomorrow Never Dies because I think it was the one Bond film that actually went, what if we did a different kind of Bond villain? Because... He's a megalomaniac, sure, but also the kind of like press manipulation, media access. I kind of wish they'd leaned more into that, but I guess they were worried about making it too kind of far from the standard. But no, I I love Tomorrow Never Dies. I also think the gadget wackiness was just right in Tomorrow Never Dies. And the soundtrack, David Arnold and Moby, was brilliant. Uh, so it's 97 tomorrow never dies so we will get it in our timeline just about um probably in the mid-season break but yeah like it's the, it's the gadget side of things or like the car side of things particularly in later bronham bonds that goes you know the underwater car and all this sort of stuff also that soundtrack is pretty diabolical uh goldeneye on the other hand i think it's got a great song i think it's a really good bond number and i just it's it is it's a fucking brilliant film. I really, really like Goldeneye, and I think that because of um, late the later era Bronholm Bonds, I think he gets a bit of a bum rap as Bond. I don't think people look back on it as fondly as perhaps they probably should do. Yeah, I mean, what can I say about The World Is Not Enough? That's the one with the Christmas joke that you wait the entire movie for because you know it's coming, so to speak. And... <laughs> That and it involves a pipeline. What What were the other ones? Die Another Day, that was yeah, Madonna being shot. Yeah, really um, bad that one. Was there another one? I think it was just the four. It was just yeah. those ones. It was basically those final two just really sunk the, the, the Brosnan ship when it came to Bond. And it's a shame, really, because like you mentioned earlier, he should have been Bond years before this, years and years before this, but wasn't because of Remington Steel. And he finally got the chance to do it and really only got two good films out of it. And he looked tired by the end of it, like he didn't want to be doing it anymore. I tell you what I would like to see, is you know that there's all the talk about like kind of old man Batman films and like who would you cast as like the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight kind of like comic book kind of old man Batman. And we've already had an old man Bond with Never Say Never Again, the non-broccoli kind of Bond film. I would like to see Piers Brosnan come back and do an old man Bond movie. Just as a standalone, but just literally do it as the kind of like the old man Bond called back into service. I think that could be quite fun because, you know, Brosnan's still, he's still pretty sharp looking. He's still in pretty good shape. He could probably, you know, get back on the cardio and, and and get fighting fit again. And 
have a really, really good film and maybe a bit of redemption for how, you know, what houses those last two films were. And we probably wouldn't have to do a musical number, which is good news for everyone. You mean he wouldn't sing the theme song, write the theme song, he wouldn't do it. Maybe we need to get an old man Bond starring Pierce Brosnan with the theme song written by Dennis Waterman. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, you know, we'll talk about this later on in the episode as well and down the line, but we did get a pretty good game out of GoldenEye. Oh, a yes. A pretty good game. I mean, obviously, we're not going to get it for years yet, but we get a pretty good game out of it. it it's one you guys may have heard of, certainly. Um, haven't talked much about the actual production of Goldeneye, because if I remember correctly, we get this for a good few weeks. We have this for quite a while. Yeah, I think really we're on a bit of the home stretch for Series 5. We've only got seven or so episodes left, and one of those is a recap episode. And we don't actually have that many films or songs left on our timeline. I think we've actually only got one more song to talk about before we reach the end of the series. Thankfully, with Goldeneye... I have material to talk about on GoldenEye that can go on for days because there is so much to talk about with this film. But we'll pace ourselves, Luke. We've got a few weeks to cover it. Yeah, I think we've actually got three films left. It's this, Babe, and Seven. (laughs) That's a trio. That's a night's (laughs) entertainment. I don't know which order you go with it in. Like, I'm not sure. What a trilogy of terror. (laughs) Yeah. Would 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 you end on Babe or would you end on... Actually, no, I'd probably go... Seven or is, babe, is Babe the nice palate cleanser? Yeah, I'd probably go start with Seven, then go Babe, like over dinner, probably mm-hmm. like a vegetarian dinner, and then end with Goldeneye, because Goldeneye has the kind of feel-good ending without being weird talking animals. Yeah, you'd, uh, yeah, you wouldn't want to end with Seven, would you? Like, <laughs> with, through like, the box. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Welcome to Games Master, the show that takes the competitiveness of 15 to 1, the drama of Brookside, and the humour of whose line is it anyway, puts them all on the line and says, bog off, we can do better ourselves. And over the next 25 and 3 quarter minutes, we're going to prove it. Now, way back in episode 7 of series 4, we had a massive change in the Games Master format, which was no longer having three challenges. That was the first episode we had where there were only two challenges on the episode, which was the Lion King and FIFA for the, the FIFA tournament. And we mentioned there that it's, you know, a bit of a change of format. This is going to become the norm, basically. It's very rare that we get more than two challenges per episode. And the reason why we tend to get those two challenge episodes towards the end of series four is because they were changing the format as they were airing the episodes, basically. They were like, well, we filmed this to be a three challenge series but we actually only want it to be a two challenge series with lots of news series five we have got a another change here this is the first time ash where we've got just one challenge on this show this show is weird like for a number of reasons one of which is that single challenge but also the structure feels odd like we get the standard intro from dom where he's just like oh 15 to 1 brookside whose line sling the rook da 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 and then hard cut into the news. Not even Dom going, and now some news. It's just a case of, boom, hard cut, news title, and we're away. And that hard cut happens a couple of times in this episode to the point where I'm thinking, was this another episode that was essentially built in the editing room rather than built as a kind of a filming concept? Did they kind of have the news they wanted to cover and the feature later, which is a big feature, and we know how Dom was heavy on the exclusives and wanting to be the first 
for things. So did it kind of all get cut together in the editing room where we're like, right, we've got this big feature at the end. We've got a fairly beefy review section and a news section. We've got room for one challenge, but it needs to be a long challenge and maybe a challenge that we don't edit quite as heavily as we'd otherwise like because, spoilers, this challenge plots. Um, Yeah, so it doesn't feel like this episode was what it was originally designed to be and that, in fact, it very much came into being because of the Ultra 64. Sorry, the Nintendo 64. Sorry, the Ultra 64. Dude, it says Nintendo 64 on the screen. Stop calling it the Ultra 64. This I had the same thing with this. I was trying to figure out whether this was a a series four situation where they had an episode or they had you know some stuff to work around with, and then we're like, oh, actually, we've got the Ultra sixty four stuff. The whole episode is built around it. Our opening news item is essentially telling you hang around until the end of the episode because we've got exclusive looks at the Nintendo sixty four. Or did they actually sort of factor into this? Like, did they know that the Ultra 64 news was going to be here and they were going to have a feature on it, which I highly doubt? Or did they plan to do an intro like this where he doesn't tell you what challenges are coming up and they basically just got that sat there in the can ready to use in case they need to do an episode like this? Because I reckon this whole challenge here with uh, the, the virtual pool challenge in any other episode where there wasn't such, you know, the the massive feature that we have at the end here would have been cut down dramatically. We essentially get the unedited version of it here, which is, as you say, why it plots. Yeah, I given how brutally hard it cuts to the news, I, I do think that they kind of just had just enough wiggle room that even if there was a kind of and coming up on tonight's show, it, it it was there was enough space they had to cut. Just because I say it's it's such a hard cut that immediately my brain it wasn't even on the second viewing. My first viewing was like, "Ooh, that leapt." Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's 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 very odd, and it's not even odd because we've seen it before. We literally saw pretty much the second half of series four was like this. It's odd that we've seen it in series five though, because series five feels like such more of a tighter production. But this is big news, and I can understand why this may have you know re- involved a very very last minute recut easily so because this is like you know there's only like we'll get to it when we hit the news items but these trailers were shown on friday and this is being aired four days later yeah i we're so close to having this book luke and when (laughs) we have this book we will have these answers we will be blessed with knowledge and you know it will actually make the last couple of seasons fly by because it will be a case of, oh, well, this is what actually happened. We don't even need to pontificate. We'll be in and out in 30 minutes. It will be done. Last Friday, Nintendo's Ultra Secret Ultra 64 console came out to play in Tokyo. The bad news was many of the games on show were still far from ready, but Mr. Good News was still pulling on his trousers, as these shots indicate. We'll have a full report on the staggering Ultra 64 later on in the show. And Dom, as you said, kind of, teases us for later talking about the ultra 64 even though it's clearly called the nintendo 64 this is going to be the new virtua fighters isn't it yeah it's so bizarre isn't it like it is i they must have seen the footage wouldn't they because they edited the episode together but i guess that no one had told them in the memo that it has now been renamed to the nintendo 64 and because they have been calling it the ultra 64 for the last year that you know it's old habits die hard and they're just still sticking with calling it the Ultra 64, even though, as you mentioned earlier, you can see in the video clips, it has got written on the console, Nintendo 64. Yeah, and 
Dom does tee this up for later in the show, but he does kind of also give the slight forewarning of, it's good, but, you know, there is there is a proviso here of like, uh, it's there, it's here, and there were 13 games, but none of them were ready. And Yeah, well, you know, the news item we had last week was the Ultra 64 is going to be unveiled this Friday with 10 playable games. And what we actually get is half of a game and then a game that doesn't actually come out and a load of trailers. Yeah, a load of rolling demos, some of which also don't come out, one of which was literally a tech demo put together just so they actually had something to show. But we will get to that later. However, Luke... Good news for the Saturn. Saturn owners rejoice. Many so-called exclusive PlayStation titles are being converted for your machine, including Destruction Derby and Wipeout, once voted number one reason to buy the Sony machine. Top PlayStation beta up to Shinden was also released last week in Japan for the Saturn with an extra fighter and intro animations. A comparison of the two versions reveals the Saturn surprisingly adept at matching the PlayStation much tighter graphic capabilities. This is good news for the Saturn though, isn't it? Like this is really, really good news the PlayStation has been riding high with some of these cons- um, Buckingham Harriers console exclusives like Wipeout and Destruction Derby and even Toshinden. Like they, like you know, those three games were really like lifted high up to a pedestal of like reasons to buy your PlayStation. And if you're a Sega Saturn user, you got like, okay, cool, I've got Sega Rally, I guess, but it'd be really cool to have those games. Finally, now they're coming out on my console. I mean, ah, oh, just being able to play Wipeout on your Saturn without the licensed music, but being able to play Wipeout on your Saturn at 20 frames per second. But being able to play Wipeout on your Saturn, yeah, it, it was a conversion, it was there, but there were some things missing. Unsurprisingly, because the music was licensed by Sony, that didn't leap across to uh, the Sega console. And as I think we've covered, the Saturn was not a 3D console. Uh, my Saturn at the moment is actually sat under our main TV downstairs and it's been seeing a lot of play over the past week, uh, partly just because fun times on Puzzle Bubble, but also because I'm um, replaying a game in preparation to appear on Hardcore Gaming 101 and it's just nice to be able to sit on the sofa and play it. And every time I dip into a 3D game, as I did, knowing that this was coming up, it's a case of, oh, well, that's nice. But then I boot up Street Fighter Zero Three, or Fire Pro Wrestling Six Man Scramble, or any of the puzzle bubbles. And I'm like, oh, this is great. This is just fun and good times. I haven't tried Golden Axe yet. That is still on my to-do list because, you know, I want to see if I still agree with Dave Perry. It haunts me. I mean, what we're looking at here is just, it's hope for Saturn owners. Like you say, like the wipeout conversion ends up not being that good. But if you are a Saturn user and you have been sat there on the sidelines, been looking through the window, peering into those PlayStation owners and their cool, fancy 3D games, this is really like a, oh, cool, maybe I did back the right horse. You didn't, but, you know, hope is always there. One of the features that the PlayStation version had, and I think we talked about it before, is the link cable option for multiplayer, which, you know, does mean you need two copies of the game, two PlayStations, two TVs. And they wanted that to be included for the Saturn because they have the Tazen cable, which allowed similar sort of things. It didn't get put in because Psygnosis were like, no, this has to come out in March. Do you know why it has to come out in March, Luke? Financial year. It had to be part of that financial year, 95, 96, because it's all about the monies. Three, two, one, action! 
driving middle-aged Americans off the street is Robot Wars. The second year of the event in California recently saw 20 remote-controlled robots go head-to-head -head in a series of fight-to-the-death rounds to find the toughest robot alive. Designers used a plethora of approaches from the flamboyant to the plain stupid, but in the end the event was won by a vicious motorised bread bin. A similar UK event is planned next year. If you're interested in taking part, watch out for the address at the end of the show. And our last news item here is effectively just the news item that was in the TV edit of the Gore special. Just to edit about Robot Wars. And that's again more of that, like, hacked up job that this sometimes feels like of an episode. It's technically the same sort of news article, but it is about the second Robot Wars as opposed to the first. Just so using all of the same footage. Uh, some of the same footage. There is some new footage in there. They're not showing a guy eating a lot of red meat for a start. But, I mean, this event took place August 19th and 20th, 1995. So this is kind of old news. This is a filler piece. Yeah, we see a bot called The Master being declared the winner. Uh, the Master didn't actually win the overall tournament, despite what Dominic says. It did win, like, best design. And the overall tournament was won in the middle and heavyweight by a bot called La Machine, uh, which was a wedge robot that competed in the last three kind of Robot Wars tournaments in the US before they sold the Robot Wars name that went overseas. And uh, it was considered a pioneer of the wedge format to the point where the UK Open competition, the one they mentioned at the end of this news feature, it actually flew over and took part in it. I think, like, you know, the, the point you made there, this, this is quite an old news item, is kind of what I was saying earlier about how, like, this feels like a... We'll use this to just fill the gaps that we need because, really, this episode is built around the Ultra 64 feature we get later on. So this does feel like a filler news piece, and which is very odd for Series 5. Although it is promoting the fact that Robot Wars is coming to the UK because the address is at the end of the show so people can find out information. It sort of is, but, it, but, that, but that doesn't feel like that's the purpose of the news item. The news item feels like it's about the American Robot Wars and the, the second tournament and that. And then the bit at the end, it feels just a bit tacked on to be like, oh, and by the way, there's also this. See, I actually thought the other way around. I actually thought the kind of like press release that caught the eye was Robot Wars is coming to the UK via an open invitational. How do we turn that into a news piece? Oh, they had the US Robot Wars a couple of months ago. We can get footage from that. So I actually thought it was the reverse. It was the way of making the press release into a news article and have something cool fighty to show. See, I, I, I get what you mean, but I would have led with that as opposed to tacking it on at the end. If that's what if that's what the intention was, and that's why I, I feel like it was a, a it doesn't quite come across that way because it is tacked on at the end as opposed to it is leading the piece. Yeah, no, I, I get where you're coming from. It's just to me, it felt like a means to the ends, and the ends was going, "Hey, Robot Wars is coming to the UK." And given what we know about the ties between Games Master and what will eventually come, Robot Wars on the BBC, it feels kind of poetic. First up on the PC, the game that was supposed to come out 47 years ago. Steven Spielberg and George Lucas co-present The Dig. This one has a Steven Spielberg plot. Now, as graphic adventures go, they normally live or die on their plot. This seems to be slightly too serious for me. The games that went before it, Day of the Tentacle and Full Throttle, were both very humorous and very polished. But this one just seems to have the polish without the heart. And I think as a result, it could fall flat on its face. It's the puzzles that are going to really count. And fans of the genre aren't going to be disappointed when it comes down to that.
but then the news is barely done and we're off into the reviews like this is it's a weird paced episode this one but this first game is a game that as dom rightly points out has been in development for a dog's age oh yeah it's the dig conceived by steven spielberg produced by kind of george lucas maybe if you want to think of it like that but this was originally a story idea for steven spielberg's amazing stories and it kind of left the bounds of television and became the concept for a game this this development of this game predates games master that's how long this thing has been going on for it was like 89 and it yeah it was based off the amazing stories idea that ended up not being done and that is quite a development cycle there of six years by the time that it eventually does come out. Because this was announced for 1992 and then eventually came out late 95. I, I find it, I, I find the reviews of The Dig quite unfair, particularly that we get from Dave and Rick here, because what they are doing is comparing it to previous LucasArts games like Day of the Tentacle, which are very light and they're funny and they're full of, you know, fun and vigor and stuff. But this is a much more serious game. And because of that, like Dave and Rick are just like, oh, it's missing the fun, isn't it? And I think that's an unfair comment to make when this game isn't trying to be like Day of the Tentacle. It's like going for an Indian meal and complaining that it's not a pizza. Exactly. Like, I just, I think it's a really unfair comparison. And it's not even Dave and Rick that were, you know, like looking at the reviews at the time, a lot of people were like, nah, it's not, it hasn't got the fun of Day of the Tentacle. And I, I just think that's really, really unfair. Not everything needs humour. And maybe that's where we're at with games, is that you either have funny games or you have ultra-violent games like your Doom. Even then, there is some humour to be had, particularly when you get onto the Duke Nukem 3D side of things. I think it's also a case of, like, just you have made a type of game, you now must make those types of games forever. Yeah, you, you can't grow outside of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, which weirdly is a problem that Spielberg himself faced. It was meant to be a more violent game as well. I was reading up about it earlier. Like, it was meant to be more violent, but um, after Jurassic Park, basically, you know, a lot of parents took their kids to see this PG 13 Jurassic Park and were then stunned to find out that it's actually a little bit violent. And uh, Spielberg was like, I don't want any more of this heat. Like, let's, just, let's make this game less violent, shall we? Now, Okay, the the game was still stuck in development hell at that point, probably on its second or third project lead out of four. But you have to wonder if they had reviewed the 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 serious but more violent dig, would they have been complaining about the lack of humour, or would the fact that it was gorier have been enough for the synapses in Dave and Rick's head to go? Okay, yeah, I wonder if like if it was even more violent, would they have actually doubled down? on the Day of the Tentacle comparisons to be like, wow, this really isn't like Day of the Tentacle and I miss that. Maybe, I I don't know, maybe it would have been enough of a departure, maybe it wouldn't. Uh, Other features that were lost in addition to the violence was actually a proper kind of real-time survival aspect where you would have to find food, water and oxygen for life support. And if you didn't keep those topped up, you would die. And that's a level of peril in a point-and-click game that I don't think I've ever really seen anywhere. It, it actually makes it more like Nightmare, in that you are exploring different rooms, and it's like, oh, my skull's showing, I better stick a bun in a knapsack. <laughs> Still, you know, for all of their sort of, like, 
not not negative i actually know i mean rick's final line here where he says the puzzles are good and you know that's a big part of what matters it's 88 percent we end up on here with which is actually you know, it's a pretty good score for the dig which was you know quite it, it got pretty mixed reviews when it came out i think it's looked back on more fondly now but then again now we do appreciate serious games that don't have to have humor or jokes or whatever you know that can just be a that can just be a product of genre that can just be a story that doesn't have to kind of pander to every single person. So yeah, I might go back and replay it at some point. It's certainly a game that I can't remember if I actually played the first time around. I wouldn't have done, no. Like my my LucasArts points and clicks, uh, I mean, Day of the Tentacle, obviously, but then it was Fate of Atlantis was the one I really, really got into. Loved that game. Next up, drive cars through bumpy roads with your arm round a lady while listening to loud rock anthems in Sega Rally on the Saturn. One. The attention to detail is stunning. It runs at 40 frames per second, which is even faster than Ridge Racer. It has a two-player split-screen option, and there are things in there like customising your car, time attacks. It's got so many options in there. Sega have really pulled their finger out on this one. This is going to be massive. The actual gameplay itself is extraordinarily fast. The speed of the game is so astounding, it makes Ridge Racer look like your old granny driving a Reliant Robin. On the time attack, there are hidden cars to discover, and there's a really good commentary running right through the game, warning you of tight corners coming up, whether they're left or right, so you can prepare yourself. Yep, Sega Rally is going to be a huge hit on the Saturn, and it's a very good reason to give Sega's console good consideration this Christmas. Ah, but this next game is one everyone can love, Luke. Who doesn't love a bit of racing? Well, exactly, yeah, you know, Sega Rally Championships on the Sega Saturn, a nice, it's a big release for Sega Saturn users, and... They talk this up a big deal here. Dave talking to me, the 40 frames a second, it's faster than Ridge Racer. And they have, Sega that is, done everything that they can to make this not just a arcade port. This is a home conversion. This is a brand new game. There's unlockables, it's bigger, there's you know more stuff in there to be found. This is, you know, I, I love the fact they end this saying, like this could be a reason to buy the Saturn. So... I've had my Sega Saturn for, I guess, a, it's not quite a year, but I've been getting on, you know, I got it last year and I got my optical drive emulator with it and I got all that sorted. So I've got the entire library of games, including some wonderful fan translations of games that otherwise wouldn't have been available in English. I don't think I have yet to encounter a single game that would make me go this is a reason to buy the Sega Saturn. Even in the context of 1995, I don't think I've encountered a single game that would make me go, this would have made me choose the Saturn over the PlayStation. Now, don't get me wrong, I am loving my time with the Saturn and having the optical drive emulator in the original hardware and also the uh, the new the new version wireless joypads is great because no cables stretching over the living room. And it's just a good time and I'm playing some great versions of 2D games and I'm playing Sega Rally. The Saturn version of this is great. It is not arcade perfect. It is far from arcade perfect. The Saturn was not as powerful as the Model 2 hardware. They had to drop polygon counts, texture resolutions, draw distance. The rear view mirror was gone. But they didn't just half-arse it and go, well, it's an arcade conversion. They added stuff. You could customize cars. You had more advanced record keeping of lap times. There was even like a co-op mode in the multiplayer mode. There was all kinds of different things they added in to make it a value 
added purchase. And as Dave says, it hits 40 frames per second. It has a split screen mode. It has so much that Ridge Racer didn't. And it is a very good game that I think really, really pushes the Saturn's 3D capabilities. The sad thing is, it really, really pushes the Saturn's 3D capabilities. And we should not see a game taxing it as much as this, this early in its development cycle. It's a standard thing of like, so you look at some of the early PlayStation games versus the late PlayStation games, and it's incredible what they achieved out of that hardware. Same with the Xbox as we move forward into the Xbox, Xbox 360, and even now with the PS5 and the Xbox Series X, we will not see the true best that that console has to offer probably for at least another year. Even though it is just a jumped up PC, there will still be tricks that people will learn as time goes on. But the Saturn should not be being pushed this hard this early. That's exactly it, right? Like this is almost, the, this is the tip of the top of what you're going to get. There are some still good games to come out for the Sega Saturn, don't get me wrong, but it is, I think the, I, I, I'm looking, I'm excited to see the journey that the Saturn goes on as we end up our run on Games Master, as more 2D games start to come out for it, and what and to see whether or not Games Master and the magazines realize, oh, this is where the Saturn succeeds. This is what the Saturn is great for. Or whether there'll be much there'll be more pushback on that, like we got last week with Golden Axe the Jewel. Yeah. I mean, if I think of all the games that I've played over the past week on the Saturn, as I said, uh Street Fighter Zero Three, Fire Pro Wrestling, um, Puzzle Bobble, and also Vampire Savior, X-Men, Children of the Atom. Yeah, I've said it before. X-Men vs. Street Fighter is on the Saturn is the best version of the game you can get in the home market. I bought a lot of 2D fighting games on the PlayStation in the kind of original timeline. I think I prefer playing them on the Saturn mm -hmm. by a country mile. Same here. But Games Master were not the only people to be high on Sega Rally. It was the fastest selling CD game in history at the time. It beat out Destruction Derby's record by 10% and represented 74% of all UK Saturn titles sold in its week of launch. It's a really fascinating statistic, isn't it? Three quarters of Saturn owners picked up a copy of it. I mean, you would, wouldn't you? That, well, that's what I mean. Like, it feels like the oh, this is the game we've all been waiting for to finally hear and we need to go... Like, this this gives me a reason to have owned my Saturn. You've got to wonder how long it lasts, though, in terms of, yeah. like, you know, does does that appeal of having Sega Rally at home give you the... I definitely backed the right horse here picking the Sega Saturn. You're three months later. Yeah, I think it's a difficult... You, you might kind of, like, be crowing a bit when this comes out, particularly if you compare it directly against Ridge Racer. But it's kind of... It's a consolation hand job, really. Yeah, that's exactly it. Like, you know, you need that next game to also be, and this is another reason to have a Saturn. And I don't know what that's going to be in the Saturn's timeline in the next few months. Where are we for Knights? Knights is next year, I think. Yeah. I mean, Knights is also very much a not Western game. It's not, no. Like, and it struggled to find its audience here. But it did give us a really quite cool joypad. <laughs> yeah. The Sega, I've got one. It's a, on a shelf up here somewhere. That Sega 3D joypad is like boggles my mind. Finally, more toys for the boys as gung ho military types fire Freudian rockets in a psychoanalyst's dream. Warhawk on the PlayStation. 
This one of those games where you fly across great expanses of land. It's completely flat, nothing going on, and all of a sudden out of nowhere, up pops an enemy building for you to shoot at. How convenient. Now Dave's probably one of those shoot-em-up mentalities that likes to shoot anything that moves. This is far more strategical than that. There's only six missions, although each one is split up into different sub-missions. Uh, other than that, I don't think it's going to last too long, but it is a good game while it does. And lastly on the PlayStation, we've got Warhawk, which, um, it, you know, we've mentioned this a few weeks back. You don't get a lot of reviews like this in Series 5, which is just a case of, yeah, it's fine. 79% uh, it gets here. I mean, looking at reviews from other places at the time, people seem to quite like it. Um, but yeah, like Dave and Rick aren't massively aren't massively keen on it. I My favorite thing about this review, though, is Dave trying to... Dave talking about draw distance but not knowing what the term is. Yeah. And I mean, basically, he does describe what poor draw distance can be, which is you're flying over a landscape of nothing and just suddenly, boop, up pops a building. It's really distracting when it happens. And actually, having just come off that Sega Rally uh, review, Sega Rally has a problem with draw distance. I mean, it was one of the sacrifices they had to make to get it to work. But I remember Warhawk being on the PlayStation. I remember seeing it advertised. I remember, I think, there was probably a demo on one of the early official PlayStation Magazine demo discs, maybe. Because I know I played it at some point and just went, eh, no, not for me. It, it's too close to a flight simulator. Flight simulators, we've talked about it before, I want to like a flight simulator. I did play Microsoft Flight Simulator on my Xbox. I did enjoy it. I have deleted it because it was 100 gig and I needed that space for something else. Crikey, bloody hell, 100 gig, man. In fairness, when you see the sheer amount of data, like the fact that I can fly and land a plane by my childhood house and it's a moderately accurate representation, and that's like bumfuck nowhere in Gloucestershire. 100 gigs suddenly doesn't seem actually that unrealistic given they're doing that kind of crazy stuff for the world. Although there are additional packs you have to download and I think when I did delete it from the Xbox, it was actually taking up about 170 gig. Bloody hell, it's too big. Remember when 650 megabytes on a CD seemed like all you'd ever oh, need, Luke? Mate, I know, when I had my first MP3 player was 128 meg. That, that's, that's the same Limp Biscuit album, twice. <laughs> Barely, I, think you, I could get about seven songs on it. For 128 meg, look at you with your fancy high bit rate. Well, it was also because, you know, that 128 meg has also got the, the system software in there as well. So it's not, you don't get the full 128 of that. Oh, it's the megabyte myth, okay. Uh, I would just like to say that I saw a quote in the Wikipedia article that made me chuckle because it was announced at E395 and the designer, Mike Giam, explained that the game's concept was formed from the fact that they looked at shooters like Afterburner and Star Fox and decided to juxtapose their arcade feeling with the freedom of a computer flight sim. So basically, they looked at two fun, tight shoot 'em ups and went, but what if boring... Yeah, what if we can make these duller? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> what if we what if we made them like twenty five percent less fun? Well, you know, we've had some news, we've had some reviews. We are nearing the end of the first half of this episode. I think it's probably about time we had a celebrity challenge. What are we playing, Dominic? Isolated punters, tired of sitting at home playing with themselves, are rapidly turning to the phone lines for comfort. Yes, many of the latest PC games come with modem capability, allowing modem owners to connect over the phone lines to other players and exchange in some top remote games playing shenanigans. Doom, Mech Warrior, 
and Screamer are all PC games that quite literally have this facility, as does the game that forms the basis of Games Master's first ever modem challenge, Virtual Pool. Luke, are you tired of playing with yourself? <laughs> yeah, I love that Dom essentially explaining the concept of playing games online via a modem. And that, that is one of the things I love about Games Master at this time, where it's like, this is not common practice. This is not something that happens in every single home. So Dominic Diamond has to explain to you, the viewer, who isn't doing this, what online gaming is what a wonderful little snapshot in time and also doing it by making a joke about phone sex lines well that as well yes that in, in only in only a way that dominic diamond can but i find it so fascinating that last week was a challenge entirely set and i use the word challenge in very loose terms but a challenge entirely set on getting <laughs> on the internet as it was in 1995 and now this week hey luke modems i know yeah well i mean hey the internet is full of cack as we saw a few weeks back however playing games games are brilliant and being able to play games on the internet is also brilliant so like maybe the internet is full of cack but there does there is a use for it elsewhere and some of these games that are using the internet in this way oh luke we've got doom we've got mech warrior we've got screamer i bet we're going to choose a really exciting game to show off in this modem challenge but what is that challenge going to be games master it's time to chalk up our tips now as the next challenge i've prepared is on the impressive pc title virtual pool our two contestants will be playing the nine-ball game, in which each of the first eight balls must be potted in sequence before the final nine-ball is sunk. Whichever player sinks the nine-ball wins the game, and thus the golden joystick. Pool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, it's funny, isn't it? Because when this came up as a challenge, I was like, huh, okay, this feels like a free-to-play game that just came bundled with your PC when you bought it, or like it was already pre-installed on the PC when you bought it. However, like I was then reading up on it, and like people friggin' loved this game when it came out. Entertainment Weekly gave this a perfect score. PC Gamer called it the best sports game of 1995. This may look and feel like a freebie download, but at the time, people really, really liked it. I think part of it was it was a combination of like it wasn't it wasn't like the first three D like balls on a table game. Let's like you know let's to really annoy the purists. Let's bundle snooker and pool together. It wasn't the first. It wasn't the first. Archer McLean might have something to say about that. But I would argue it definitely looks better. Like and it moves more smoothly and it feels it feels more modern. It does feel more modern. Yeah, and it is. I, I don't think this is the best advertisement for it. Um, but, you know, like, I, I think the concept of being able to play this online against your friends is quite an, quite an appealing idea. And interestingly, Interplay decided to go for the marketing tact of this will help your real pool game improve. Kind of like how Guitar Hero helps your um, guitar playing in real life. Oh, they took it a step further. If you did not see an improvement in your pool abilities within 45 days of purchase, you would get a full refund if you returned the CD-ROM to the company. Huh, that is a bold claim. I'm not sure who genuinely would ever take it that far. Like, who would just go, I'm still shit at pool. I better send this back to get my $39.99 back. And how many of them would just stick it on the shelf next to the computer 
and never think about it again. That's what they're gambling on, really. Yeah, as I said, like it feels like the sort of game that would have been bundled in with your PC when you bought it. it comes with virtual pool on the box. Um, you know, it, it got ported to the PlayStation later on in life in, in a couple of years' time, but they didn't make any marked improvements to it visually or uh, gameplay-wise. So it kind of got a bit panned um, when it came out because it was like, well, this game feels dated now. It two years later also it was much slower to play and you had to have the mouse to play it so i think the, sort of this version here is probably the the pinnacle of this game i mean there were many sequels will come out later but this is almost you know the, this is the better version of it to get but luke guess what what's that there was a version planned for the saturn oh poor saturn users man having said i mean like the playstation version wasn't all that great anyway so maybe that was a bullet dodged yeah i mean as you said without a mouse it's I, I can't imagine this game being much fun to play on a digital D-pad. Now, like uh, DualShock, kind of with the dual thumbsticks, sure, because there you've probably actually got a better range of control than a mouse. But just your standard D-pad and six, eight button thing, mm, probably yeah, not. Yeah, I mean, coming out in 97, it was probably a year too soon, really, wasn't it? Because we'd get the DualShock the following year. So like maybe... You- I mean, I would say if you'd have waited for that, then the game would have looked three years out of date as opposed to just being two years out of date. And here to take part in today's celebrity event, please welcome Melanie Yersley. Welcome to the show, Mel. Now, Mel, you've been involved in a lot of humorous stories in your life. Let's uh, start off with one where you had the prank going wrong. Oh, yeah, that was when um, I was at college and I was with some friends and to promote this party I was trying to organise, we dressed up in um, sort of terrorist outfits like balaclavas. As you do. Drove around town, you know, with these fake guns. Went to college, stormed the college, mm-hmm. got all these flyers and stuck them on various people and had lots of loud music playing. And I tied up a few people and had some handcuffs as well. Uh-huh. And I don't think we need to delve too deeply into that part well, of it. you know, no? it was quite fun. And left and came back to college and the head of department came in and told me that the whole of the police force in the area I put out roadblocks and they got helicopters out as well. Right. Because I didn't realise there's an army base just down the road. So what you tell me is you're just a total delinquent. Yeah, well, you know, that's what and I enjoy doing. And you shouldn't be trusted at all. You're quite lethal. Yeah, that's, that's about right. And dangerous. Well, I wonder if our challenger here, our non-celebrity challenger here, uh, I wonder if her pool game will have been improved by playing this. I don't know if it's going to improve her pool game, but boy, I am appreciating the 90s-ness of this outfit. Isn't it just, man? Massive beanie, space hopper t-shirts. I fucking love that t-shirt, man. <laughs> Oversized space hopper t-shirt. It is kind of, it's everything's extra baggy. She literally looks like a cartoon illustration of a t-shirt herself with the baggy jeans. And yeah, I, she does not strike me as a virtual pool player. Something which I think will be shown as the challenge goes on. Yeah, she doesn't strike me as much of a gamer at all. Like, she really has an air, a 90s air of, I don't really care what we're doing here. But, Luke, she does know how to organise a party, and she has many hilarious stories, including <laughs> this absolute snort ripper. This is quite the anecdote. This is quite the anecdote to tell on TV in a pre-9-11 world. I mean, essentially... Never mind pre-9-11, even in 1995, dressing up as borderline and IRA terrorist, running around town with fake guns, storming a college, sticking flyers to people, tying people up and handcuffing them, and therefore causing an entire police force to go on high alert because you failed to notice an army base down the road. It blows my mind that she's on Games Master. It blows my mind that she wasn't arrested. 
Yeah, I mean, and it's a proper, like, it's such a 90 story in, like, a look how funny this is. Actually, very much, you know, the cynical era of Games Master that we're in, which is like, look how wacky and fun this story is. Whereas, like, I'm listening to this story and being like, oh, I don't think I like you much at all. Like, because you think this is very funny, and this is very not funny. I mean, even Dom does go, so basically you're a total delinquent and shouldn't be trusted at all. And she's like, oh, it's what I enjoy doing. Yeah, I guess I am, I suppose. Yeah, I don't think Dom is condoning it at all. I think he's actually kind of like, well, I mean, it's is it funny, haha, or is it funny, hmm? I mean, you know, I I grew up in a small town that did have quite a large military base down the road, a vehicle depot. But even though it was just kind of like a static vehicle depot, it was still considered a theoretical target, especially as you know, twenty five minutes away was GCHQ. So we never had an active bomb threat or an active attack that I can remember. Certainly not in the small town I grew up in. But there were a number of abandoned bags and there were a number of false flags and false alarms. And it was always a very real threat. And I don't think there would have ever been a time where I would have gone, that's funny. What a knee slapper. But, you know, I hope Mel grew up to be a bit more responsible because it is not, you know, this is, I mean, I don't know, maybe maybe I did find this funny in 1995 because... I, I don't remember it. We probably we probably would have found it funny in ninety five. There were a lot of things fun there were a lot of things in nineteen ninety five that we thought were funny that have not dated well. Games Dave Master Perry. is one of them. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Dave Perry. Not even Games Master. Dave Perry. But anyway, Mel, despite her amazing track record, is not our celebrity. So who is? But it's a little bit different because the first time ever we're going to be doing a challenge on the phone lines via modem. We do have Ronnie O'Sullivan on the other end of this telephone. If I pick it up, he should be there now. Hello, Ronnie. Hello. Hi, Ronnie. How are you doing? All right, not bad. Listen, Ronnie, you made £285,000 in prize money in 1994-95, right? Yeah. That's a lot of money, isn't it? It's, it's all right, isn't it? It's not bad. It's not like after the tax man's finished with it, though. Tell me, tell me some fantastic things you bought with that money. Um, not not really much, really, to be honest with you. I've, um, Didn't splash out in a flashy motor or that? I did buy a car, but I had to sell that because I lost my licence not long ago. <laughs> so I, I don't think we need to delve into that. It's probably just a humorous prank that went wrong. Yeah, that's right. But, so, um, any, any snazzy clothes on that you bought? Nah, just a few bits and pieces, but nothing, you know, outrageous. Uh-huh. Just to paint a little bit of a picture for you, Ronnie, you're playing against Mel tonight. You can't see her because she's down in the studio, but uh, right. she's kind of like, looks like a funky wee clubber. Kind oh, of she girl. is. Uh, she is, yeah. She's very cool, very trendy. Looks a bit like a Smurf, actually. A Smurf? A Smurf. I'm not sure if you've ever played against anyone who looks like a Smurf before. No, I've never played against a Smurf before. I mean, Stephen Hendry looks a wee bit funny, but not exactly Smurf-like. <laughs> nah. <laughs> and it's the first time that we've got a celebrity not in studio but on the other end of the line, because, you know, how best to show the fact that we're playing this game online over modem than to have our celebrity Ronnie O'Sullivan at home in his probably massive house. But of course, this isn't the first time that we've had Ronnie on the show. We had him back in series three in the Dexter years of the show. Um, but like, I, th- you know, we know that Dom really likes his snooker players because he idolized Jimmy White with the few times that he was on the show. Remember that time when Jimmy White did that trick shot back in series one and Dom looked at him in awe of the amazing trickery that he pulled off. And I feel he's now got this new level of revelry for Ronnie O'Sullivan, who is to this day still one of the best players around. He's in the world championships this year, although 
and because I obviously looked him up earlier, is courting some controversy. Uh, an Iranian snooker player is taking him to task over being disrespectful for the game and calling his potential opponents, I quote, numpties. <laughs> Oh, Ronnie. Honestly, I've not seen or heard Ronnie's apparent tirade. I have read some of what this other player has to say, and I, I, I... This is a Will Smith, Chris Rock moment. Neither of them are looking good. Let's just leave it at that. But the simple fact is, Ronnie O'Sullivan is now like 46, 47, and is still at the top of the world. Oh, yeah. He's still... I mean, to be honest, one of the negative things he said about the sport recently is the fact that he just doesn't think there is a crop of young snooker players coming up that's going to easily dislodge him from the top 50. I mean, it doesn't feel like it, does it? Because he's still on top now. Like, he's on top here in 1995. It's 2022. That's a long old time has passed. A brand new series of Games Master was aired in that time. And he is still numero uno. And it's... It's amazing to kind of like, because, you know, I hear a lot about Ronnie O'Sullivan when you listen to Five Live and then you watch a TV show for a nostalgia podcast looking at the mid 90s and it's like, oh, and here is the top snooker star, Ronnie O'Sullivan. It'd be like, you know, if David Beckham was still the number one football player on the planet here in 2022. I mean, he may, he has made 29 consecutive world championship appearances from 93 to 2021 and obviously it's in the world championships this year as well insane insane and you know because this is series five don wants to talk about the money that he has made and you know maybe compare their bank statements together however ronnie is probably i mean i i haven't seen the records but i think he's probably made more money from snooker than dom got for series five of games master but dom was negotiating a very good contract for his return so Maybe they are closer than I'm giving them credit for. And he's like, but you know, I did buy a car, which I had to sell because I lost my license. DUI. Whoops. And we then get to Dom describing Mel to Ronnie, which starts quite complimentary, kind of like trendy clubber. A funky wee clubber. Yeah. And then just kind of nosedives. Have you ever have you ever played snooker against a Smurf? Now, I'm guessing that's because of the hat, right? Smurfs wear hats. She is wearing a hat. And she's quite short. Yeah. I, I, I guess that's, that's where it sort of starts and ends, right? Uh, well, she's also probably painted herself blue to promote a party or event when she's not pretending to be a terrorist. Maybe. But, but they, take, they take a pot shot at Stephen Hendry, though. It's just like, he's not a smurf, but that's Stephen Hendry. He's a bit weird, isn't he? He was just on the show not that long ago. Shade thrown. As I said, then, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Coming back in part two, if the telephone lines uh, keep as they are, we will have Ronnie O'Sullivan against Dangerous Mel on the phone lines. Join us in a couple of minutes. In the closing years of apartheid, three women were joined in friendship, but divided by race. It's time for you to understand what it costs me to be your friend. A nation at war with itself. Friends, the film on four premiere, Tuesday at 10. At DFS and Northern Upholstery, we've urgent news about our free-for-a-year offer. This weekend, it's your last chance to take four years free credit and pay nothing for one whole year. No deposit, no interest, no payment. Nothing to pay till November 1996. And have this beautiful suite in your home in time for Christmas. It's free for a year. But you must order now. This combination ends Sunday, 5 p.m. 
An offer from DFS and Northern Upholstery years ahead of its time. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Angelo, the album, Brown Sugar. Let me tell you about the girl, maybe I should. I met her in Philly, and her name was Brown Sugar. Brown Sugar, babe. I guess high up your love, I don't know how to be. An album for lovers of real soul. D'Angelo, Brown Sugar, out now. What really happened one night in February last year? It was a pretty chaotic, fearful, scary night. A bizarre death with even stranger consequences. They didn't know what happened to me. It was a really fearful, mysterious case. Why was the world's leading nuclear research center involved? Why are there allegations of a cover-up? What is the true story behind Gloria's toxic death? Equinox tells all, Sunday at 7 on 4. Welcome back. We're ready for some top phone line game playing action here with Virtua Pro. We've got Mel here, who's incredibly dangerous and almost got arrested for being a terrorist once. Someone who hasn't been arrested for being a terrorist, but is a top snooker bloke. Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's on the end of the line here. He's still there, Ronnie? Yeah. All right, mate, listen, have you made any more money during the break? No, 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 not sitting here. <laughs> still on that. Two, I'm going to stress that again, everyone. 285,000 quid this bloke made last year, and he doesn't even work for Channel 4. That's fantastic. We come back from the ad break, and phew, the phone line is still working. Must have two phone lines. Well, I mean, you don't. Uh, he's got that much money, Ash. Yeah, because there's, there's no way we'd be on the phone with him and him connected via modem unless this entire thing is a sham and a farce. Ashley, are you trying to claim here that he is not in his own home? I'm trying to claim here he's not playing the fucking game. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen how he holds the mouse? Well, I was worried. I was thinking about that because there's way more footage of... Because my instant reaction to this was like, I do not think that Mr. O'Sullivan is playing this game. 
But there's so many shots of him holding the mouse and stuff that I was like, well, maybe I think they've done a very good job of convincing me otherwise, but I was unsure. Also, you just called me Ashley, you <laughs> prick. But no, here's a mouse, right? And every time I see him holding it, he's holding it like that. Yeah. He's, how is he clicking the buttons, Luke? Well, my thought on that is that he is moving it into position and then moving his hand up the mouse to then click the buttons. Oh, he's grannying it. Exactly, yeah. You know, he's like Shawn Michaels using a laptop for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) My thoughts on this are threefold. He's either at home with the film crew, with two phone lines, playing this game and talking to Dom, and the computer is set up on his coffee table because he's kind of hunched over it. Like like some of us hunch over a laptop during work from home time. It's not not what you would call a traditional computer setup. And that's when the other computer involved is in heaven. Or he is actually playing the game and he is on a former phone line to Dom, but he's actually elsewhere in the building. Or Mel is actually playing against Dave Perry and then they sent a camera crew around and they filmed Ronnie's bits later. The biggest smoking gun to that, that it's not Ronnie playing this game and Mel here is just playing this against Dave Perry, is that Ronnie does not get a golden joystick. Well, no, no, it's being sent over by Courier, Luke. But, oh, yes, I mean, so they say. But the fact that he does not get given the golden joystick kind of says to me that there is actually no sense of competition here. Again, we're back to waiting for this book to come out because I really want to, I want to believe this is a genuine challenge, even if they then sent someone down to film the kind of intercut shots of Ronnie and Ronnie's actually just kind of like talking to himself on the phone just so they can get the kind of like the the cutaways. I'm fine with that. I would feel slightly miffed if it was a case of he never actually played the game. That's worse than the trick shot debacle, which is essentially click a mouse button. All right, Rick. Hello, me old mucker. Uh, this fine figure of masculinity beside me, for those who don't know, is Rick Henderson from PC Review. Rick, any tips for Mel and Ronnie? Well, apart from hanging around in suspect pool halls and laying your trade from dodgy villains, I would suggest that Mel lets Ronnie clear the table. It's an American nine ball we're playing, mm-hmm. which means you have to pot each ball in sequence and then the nine ball. But she could basically let him pot every other ball but the nine ball, leave the nine ball on the cushion, she pots it, she wins. And uh, thus not wasting any needless effort. No, she's sitting down already. Yeah. So it's... Fantastic uh, couch law potatoes guide to playing pool from Rick Henderson there. And really... Like, you know, we've we've just heard from Rick there, the fine figure of masculinity that he is. I have got pages of notes on what happens here because this challenge goes on for a while. However, it can just be summed up in two sentences. Mel is bad, Ronnie wins. Because that's all that happens in here. Melanie bollockses every single shot that she takes and Ronnie clears the table. And that is basically it. Although I would say that Ronnie doesn't win by being good, he wins by being less bad. He, I mean, he clears up a few occasions. Like he, like The shots that he gets right, he nails. He biffs a couple of them, but he is nowhere near as bad as that. Mel is. This feels like this is the first time Mel has ever played this game. She did not play this in the green room earlier in the day. She is not an expert at this game by any stretch of the imagination. And I almost feel like she was told as she sat down, this is how you play the game. And then she is forgetting how the actual the control system works on it. Do you know what one of the biggest mercies of this challenge is? Dave Perry wasn't on commentary. Yeah, thankfully it is Rick here. Um, but yeah, man. I mean, in fairness to Dave, he hasn't been the one to talk about how bad women are uh, playing games. That's I mean, that's been Dom's territory this year. Which is also kind of weird. But Mel 
does get the break and breaks in more ways than one because she pots two balls immediately off the break. Unfortunately, one of them is the white, which immediately gives Ronnie the free positioning of the ball anywhere on the table. Yeah, which gives Ronnie the cue. He pots one, he gets the one and then he gets the two. You've heard it earlier, but the idea of this game is that you've got to pot all nine balls in order. Uh, So he gets the one, he gets the two, misses the three, but then Mel misses her shot. And then he gets the three, misses the four. And it is just a lot of back and forth. Like, you described this earlier as plodding. And I think plodding is a good word. It's a bit tedious at times as well. The, the only time I feel like it gets a little bit exciting is right at the end when it is just the nine ball left. Mm. And it's the two of them just twatting it up and down the table to try and pot it. That is the only semblance of excitement from this ep- from this challenge. I remember pausing this episode during my note taking, just like going, I think I was getting a cup of tea or something like that, or a cup of coffee. And I paused it and I saw the time remaining and I audibly sighed. <laughs> it is like, oof, man, because it is, as a one challenge episode, this is not a good challenge. No, this episode actually has a lot of good in it. Mm -hmm. None of it is the challenge. No, it's all that news feature we get later on. And well, actually, no, and the news and reviews at the beginning, I would say. I'd say that everything except the challenge in this episode is pretty good. Yeah, but we'll get to we'll we'll get to that at the end because hey, Luke, we still have this pool challenge to finish. Yeah, I know, and I'm and I'm wondering like how interesting it will be for us to recap what happens in here. Like, it's just. It, 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 it rinse and repeat. Ronnie slash Dave pots a bunch of balls, misses one of them. Mel has a bad shot. Ronnie or Dave pins a couple of the balls, misses one. Mel has a bad shot. Until we get to the end. Dom does describe Ronnie as a dashing gay blade of a pool player, which <laughs> made me laugh as just expressions you don't hear anymore. I also like the, the shot they take at John Virgo's trick shot. On this one, it's just because Don basically calls all of the preamble to this foreplay because it's only the final ball that matters. Like John Virgo's trick shot, only this one's funny. Tell you what, looking back at it now, John Virgo's trick shot is about the only bit of big break that we could actually comfortably talk about in 2022. Yeah, that that is not going to be a UCP extra down the line. Which makes me sad because it would have been an interesting show format to cover. But I just can't talk about that, dickhead. At all. No. Not even in retrospect. I know. But after being described as a dashing gay blade, he biffs it, leaving Mel with an easy shot. It's such an easy shot that even I couldn't miss it. And Mel does. And she leaves Ronnie with an even easier shot. And boom, he hits it. That's Paul Luke. That's Ronnie Paul. wins. <laughs> exactly. Like it is just a case of, I don't know, man. There's some good reaction shots from Ronnie O'Sullivan in his house slash studio. Where, like, you know, Mel has that really easy opening to win here, like a proper open goal situation. And they have this shot of Ronnie who goes really wide eyed, where he's like, oh my God, I've done all this work and it's not going to pay off. But it's, um, yeah, I don't know, man. Like, Tom was saying that this is some of the worst appalling playing in this series and likely the whole series, I don't think is wrong. I would be amazed if we get worse than this for the rest of the and i in that count baby rom because the first kid on that at least played the game right and you know what i don't think baby rom lasted as long as this it certainly <laughs> no, it didn't, didn't feel like it did <laughs> no, it didn't i did like dom showing his softer sympathetic side by basically going you were shit <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> and no one will be as shit as you 
for a long, long time. Yeah, she talked about, oh, I got confused by the buttons and Dom was like, oh, you're probably concentrating too much on terrorist activities to, to bring that back up. They even they even pipe in jeers for her as she leaves the studio. And Mel's defense is she was like, oh, you know, I thought I'd be different by being bad at the game. Well, it's a bold tactic. I don't think it's ever been tried before as a deliberate move. And Dom questions why she kept trying to go under the table, which, you know, students. But also, it wasn't just being bad at pool, but struggling with the basic laws of physics. It's a very 90s response, isn't it? I thought I would try and just be bad at the game. I thought I'd play it ironically. It's Kevin the teenager all over again. And uh, Dom thanks Mel for coming on. Not huge thanks, proportional thanks. Kind of, hmm size thanks which that that got a proper laugh out of me that just on going well thanks thanks for being here you know no, not too much applause just kind of like moderate sized you know you know you tried ronnie you there yeah ronnie first of all you played a fantastic game i did yes you only took all of seven chances to put on that straight nine it's a very t- tough game and i think i've done very well just to make it on seven chances <laughs> you did. i think mel helped me because she was very poor as well she was very poor not the toughest opponent you've ever faced no, not really. It's probably the easiest. <laughs> well, listen, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the telephone, Ronnie. And Thank you. Uh, if you were here, we would present you with a golden joystick in person, but we're going to stick it on the quickest dispatch rider. I'll we make can it find. the quickest. <laughs> it will be. Thank it'll you. be there as soon as possible. Cheers. Okay, thanks for joining us today, Ronnie. The phone calls do feel like it's, you know, actually conversations between Ronnie and Dom. And if it's not, they've done a great job of making it feel like they are. I, yeah, I don't know. I'm conflicted. As I say, as suspicious as I am, I want to be completely wrong. Absolutely want to be wrong on it. Because I, I, you know, don't get me wrong. I like a convoluted setup. I like a good gimmick. I don't mind if things are rigged or shot until you get the right result. Because it's entertainment, not a sporting competition. But yeah, I don't know. It's just something would feel quite salty about this one if it turned out that Roddy wasn't even playing at all. This was not as good as Jimmy White in Series 4. No, that was one of my favourite challenges of Series 4, like man versus machine, as opposed to man versus suspected terrorist. Yeah, I think this will probably be quite high in the worst challenges of the the series when we do our wrap-up episode. It is the most powerful games machine in the world. It has a new controller that offers a different gaming experience, and it promises next-generation versions of some of the most popular titles ever. It's Nintendo's Ultra 64, and it was unveiled last week at the Shoshinki Show in Tokyo, along with demos of 13 games in development, and here exclusively for the first time on TV, all 13 of them. But do you know what, Ash? Look, here is why we're here. Here is why this episode is the way that it is, because we have got a massive, massive feature to end off on here. Because the most powerful games machine in the world, that's still being called the Ultra 64, is here-ish. Kind of. This feels like a massive... Like, you know when... Do you remember back in Series 4 when we had the Ridge Racer news? And Mm. we talked there about how this felt like a massive change in the gaming landscape. Because Series 4 was still Mega Drive and SNES challenges. And then all of a sudden there was this ridge racer game and we got the stuff on the satin this and the other and we were like wow this feels like a real changing of of the gaming landscape this is another one of those features this feels like a huge monumental feature in gaming for 1995 and you know i mentioned it earlier in the episode but this only happened four days earlier and games master have turned this around to which makes it feel so current 
it's incredibly impressive that it is here in the state that it's in. I mean, this is right up there with kind of the uh, Sega Saturn import news article with the Sonic 2 completion time thing. And with, yeah, the Ridge Racer footage, this is Dom going, I do not want to be scooped. Yeah, I want to beat Bad Influence. I do not want this footage on any other show before it gets to ours. I will die before I lose an exclusive to Violet Berlin. (laughs) Poor old Bad Influence, by the way. It's final episodes coming up soon in our timeline. Yeah, watch out for that. I don't think we can let that one go by without paying it some attention. But we get to see footage of this now Nintendo 64, despite what Dom says. And it's 13 demos-ish. And we go through the games and it's a fascinating list of games that were shown at this show because we start off with the one that we would all expect and the one that definitely appears in the form that it was in at the time, albeit 100% complete rather than 50%. And that is Super Mario 64. And it's the game we know, the game we love, the game we will talk a lot more about in the future. God, I hope we get a challenge on it. Uh, But it is there, and for the most part, it looks very much like the finished product. There's a couple of, like, HUD changes that will come in the final version of this, but basically this is the finished game. The opening screen gives some idea of what's in store, featuring a fully rendered Mario head that players can manipulate in real time. Ooh, hours of fun there, I'll bet. Games journalist Gus Swan was one of the lucky few to have a go. Mario 64 is quite a departure from Mario games in terms of gameplay, just by the virtue of it being in 3D. But it's not so different that you won't recognise the style and movement and the type of actions you're expected to perform. The bit that caught everyone's imagination and and really made people happy about the machine was um, the Bowser boss. Just the speed of the graphics and the ingenuity of the effect was really quite different to what we've seen before in a platform game. Um, One of its most striking graphical effects is um, the ability to take objects, polygon objects, close to the player without them becoming pixelated and blocky, as many players will be familiar with on other platforms. The stage we saw at the game, it was said to be 50% complete, and that perhaps explained why the levels were more sparse, and there wasn't any levels where you were panicked with the amount of enemies or terrible jumps that you had to, to overcome. The size of the game may be up to 150 stages, And from what we've played of them already, it looks as if it's going to be extremely playable um, with lots of hidden features as you progress. So I don't have any doubts it'll be a great game. Uh, We're skipping ahead a bit, but uh, we do actually get uh, kind of an interview with a journalist that was there and played it. And one of the comments he makes is, he's like, oh, you know, it was only a 50% build. And so there was never a point where you really felt like there were a lot of enemies around. It was quite sparse. You know, hopefully that'll be fixed in the final version. It's like, nah, mate, there is never a point in Mario 64 where you really feel swamped by enemies. That's not the kind of game it is. There's a comment that he makes that I really like. It's Gus Swan that uh, is the journalist. And there's a comment that he makes that I really, really like, which is that it's different to Mario. It's different to all the previous Mario games because this one's in 3D, but you still recognize it. 
And that, I think, is one of the great strengths of Mario 64, is that, yeah, it's a completely different game. It's, you know, completely different to Super Mario World because it's in the 3D environment. But when you pick up and play, you're like, oh, this is a Mario game. I think it's the one thing that Sonic has always struggled with in, when it moved to 3D, is that 3D Sonic games don't feel like Sonic games anymore. They feel like brand new games. Mario 64 still feels like Mario. It's an incredible achievement. I think part of it is because of time and also the building of the brand of Mario to be more than just platforms. Because if you look at it at this point, we've had Mario, Mario 2, The Lost Levels, but then we had Mario USA, aka Super Mario Brothers 2, to most of the world, which brought about a real change in graphical style and a real evolution. And that was carried on into Super Mario Brothers 3 and Super Mario World. And it was that world as it now existed in, those colours, those cartoons, which transferred so well to Mario 64. If there hadn't been that evolution in kind of world building and graphical style and character style, I don't know it would have worked so well. The biggest issue Sonic always has is trying to match the traditional Sonic gameplay with a fully populated world because you put that kind of speed in three dimensions, it don't work you run into things. Yeah, and it just feels unwieldy. And, you know, but you talk about the evolution of Mario there, and that's the one thing that Sonic didn't have, which you've actually seen in the reviews for the games that we've had on Games Master, is that while there have been graphical improvements, while there have been slight tweaks to gameplay, Sonic 3 isn't that much different to Sonic 1. And Sonic & Knuckles isn't that much different to Sonic 2. Whereas Super Mario World is a marked difference from Mario 1. Yeah. I mean, there's still the basic running, jumping, but even how you approach levels and how you tackle levels and how levels are structured have changed with the times. The evolution of the world map, the secret exits, this and the other. Like it is, yeah, it, it actually had an evolution and it changes with each one, which Sonic didn't really have. So when it moved into 3D, as I said, it just felt like a brand new series, a series that I didn't like as much. I was fine with Sonic Adventure 1 and Sonic Adventure 2. Because also they did kind of, with the title, give away that it wasn't going to be a traditional Sonic game by calling it Adventure. Mm. You know, they, they kind of implied exploring. But also, I, I like Sonic Adventure 2, uh, the opening sequence where you get out of the helicopter and you steal a bit of the helicopter and use it to kind of snowboard down the hill while Escape from the City is playing in the background. I love that. That sold me on the Dreamcast, just that level, because I was just like, this is fun. That is the best thing to come out of Sonic Adventure, is that soundtrack. But we will talk a lot more about Mario 64 in the future. We will also probably talk about Super Mario Kart R. Isn't it weird that the original title they had for this was Mario Kart R, considering that virtually every other title that we get given here is blank 64. Like we get it with Kirby Ball 64, Wave Race 64, Pilotwing 64, Buggy Boogie 64. And like to the point where Dom's making jokes about the fact that a lot of these titles have got 64. And eventually this would be Super Mario Kart 64, but their original plan was to not call it that, despite the fact every other game was. And even Dom's like, I've no idea what the R stands for. I don't know. Racing? But racing. Super Mario Kart Racing. Reloaded? Retuned? Retooled? Yeah. Rev? Um, 
rendered because the graphics are rendered. There Could we go. Be. This game looks like Mario Kart 64. This is another game where there was clearly a lot of polish still to be done, but I'm looking at it and going, that's Mario Kart 64. That's recognisable as the game. What a beautiful upgrade from Super Mario Kart and the SNES as well. Still one of my absolute favourites of here. the entire series. Mario Kart 64. It was the four-player. It was the tracks, the weapon types. Yeah, everything about it I loved. Superb. I mean, Dom even talks here about the four-player action. What a huge selling point it was. Such a great game. And then we get Kirby Bowl 64, which I have in brackets, missing, presumed dead. Yeah, this is what we talked about last week. It was just, you know, this was one of the playable games that was there. There was only two of them. It was Mario 64 and this one. And we don't get this one at all. And I think I'm getting this right in that this started obviously as Kirby Bowl uh, also went by the name Kirby Ball, developed by HAL Laboratories. It was one of the first games shown for the Nintendo 64, as we've seen here. And it was in development for a long, long time and later became Kirby's Air Ride, which was also cancelled, but then reappeared as a slightly different game for the GameCube. But Kirby Bowl 64, as we see it here, was just never released and at the time we see it here and even dom comments on the fact it looks a bit janky it was only 20 percent complete this was this was this was borderline beta build maybe even an alpha i almost think they'd have been better off having 12 games and only one playable demo and just like throwing all of those demo stations over to mario 64 i mean it's interesting when we talked about kirby ball last week cliff one of our you know our listeners our patreon backers nintendo 64 life podcast he mentioned on our Discord that this is just... It, Kirby Ball 64 is the dev kit ROM that Nintendo 64 fanatics want someone to find. Like, you know, this the, the big missing game of the, of the Nintendo 64 oeuvre. And it's just... It's never... This is literally the only version of it that exists is what we got at this show here. It's locked away in a vault somewhere or how labs will still have the code. At some point this shit will leak out some it has to be found somewhere everything everything else seems to get found the comments that dom has to make about wave race 64 is something that actually comes up later when he talks about goldeneye which is comparing it to games that I don't feel are actually apt to compare them to. I mm, I think it's actually appropriate at this point in Wave Race 64, because to me, Wave Race 64 is jet skis, whereas the footage we see here is not jet skis. It's actually more like F-Zero, and therefore, I think, more in line with comparing it to Wipeout, because... The bobbing of the anti-grav sleds in Wipeout, the bobbing of kind of futuristic speedboats on water. I kind of get where he's coming from here. Mm. But Wave Race 64, when it comes out, it's jet skis. Here, it is quite a different looking game, even if some of the level structure looks similar. Do you know what's funny is that when I was watching through the footage and I, you know, I was making my notes for this, I didn't even pick up on the fact that, yeah, you're right, like it does look a bit more like they are flying machines as opposed to like there's a lot of shots of them on water, but there are like a couple of shots where it looks like they're not on water. And I think that's why when he started talking about like comparing it to Wipeout, I thought, well, that's a bit unfair because these are quite clearly jet skis, but... 
yeah, when the actual footage we have here is they look more like cars on water or like vehicles on water. Yeah, I mean, there is one screenshot I'm looking at, which I think is from the same kind of like press junket release, things taken from this show. There's a white, red and black craft that genuinely looks like one of the craft out of F-Zero. Like there's the one that kind of looks like half a hamburger in F-Zero, kind of a mm. hamburger bun, quite quite dome-shaped. There's a craft that looks like that. So I don't think Dom, particularly as well, given that all he has is footage to look at, I don't think he's too far off the mark with his comments based on what he's seeing. But this is the version of Wave Race that we will see until E3 96 when Nintendo go, it's got jet skis now. Pilot Wing 64 is more or less the game that we would, it looks like the game we would eventually get. Bloody love Pilot Wings. I was going to say, you are a massive <laughs> fan of Pilot Wings on the SNES. I haven't played Pilot Wings 64. I think my friend did have this, but I don't remember playing it. I owned it. I played it. I loved it. If you ask me to pick a Pilot Wing games just to, like, you know, have a go on, I would still recommend the SNES. I think it's much easier to pick up and it's much kind of easier to just knock through. Pilot Wing 64 is a bit more open form, a bit more kind of loose, but it's a lot of fun. I really, really dig it. It. I got it fairly early in my Nintendo 64 ownership, and it was one of the games I never got rid of. Buggy Boogie is, or Buggy Boogie 64 is another game that's on this list that does not come out. This is one of those cancelled games that we get. It's just, you know, like I think prototypes of this are now available for you to download and play but yeah a a full release of this never actually happens yeah it was announced at the show obviously and apparently may have actually been playable behind closed doors it wasn't a publicly playable demo but was in a state that could be played but this game would stick around for quite a while even though it was as you say eventually cancelled there'd even be some new screenshots of it revealed in 1997 and the look of it, as we kind of saw in this early footage, was quite kind of grim, dark, gritty. Grr. The 97 version was much brighter, much funnier, much more colourful and cartoony. Uh, not entirely surprising, given that they did actually end up working with Miyamoto on the project, who also reportedly, after checking in on the game, barely giving any input, looked at a book full of ideas and plans and said, you're going to throw away most of that shit. <laughs> Never change Miyamoto. But the game was eventually scrapped in early 1998 because Nintendo were just like, yeah, we just don't like what we're seeing. And the development team Angel were moved over to the Nintendo 64 port of Resident Evil 2, which itself was a technological miracle. Christmas Day, that game is unreal. Uh, We won't get to it in our timeline, I don't think, but uh, the 64 release of it, that is, but man alive what an incredible achievement that is it still boggles my mind how good resident evil 2 is on the n64 it's insane it shouldn't work no exactly but it it shouldn't have worked oh man it's so so impressive up next we've got blast dozer not 64 and also would not be called blast dozer when it eventually gets released we would know it's yeah, as in its release as as Blast Core. It was an early, early rare game, uh, relatively junior development team. Most of them were recent graduates. And I I kind of liked this. I kind of dug the game. It was kind of a weird concept of nuclear convoy and you just had to keep clearing crap in front of it to make sure that the bomb didn't explode. But it was really fun it looked good the destructive nature of it was obviously appealing to a lot of people and yeah good times but up next is one of the big games 
in, in the pre-launch era of the N64. And we saw with Star Wars Arcade the idea of being like, wow, look at this 3D version. Like, I feel like I'm actually in a Star Wars movie and I'm actually in the trenches of the Death Star. Shadows of the Empire, though, like when you see that footage of Hoth and you see those snow speeders taking down Atats, it is just like, holy shit, like this is actually Star Wars. And it looks so good. I love Shadows of the Empire. I've actually got the hardback book novelization of it over there. Um, I, I remember, I think, having the paperback of it at the time. I played the game. I think I listened to the album. It was a multimedia experience. The game was okay. Yeah. It, it, it was... It was it was not it tried to do a lot of different things and it succeeded at some better than at others. I think that's the easiest way to put it is that there were some levels like the snow speeder, like the space combat levels that were great. And there were other bits like the third person sections that were not so great. They weren't playing to the strengths of the development team or indeed of just where their focus happened to be at the time. I would like to do more on Shadows of the Empire when we reach it. Not just the game, but just like the entire thing because it was something the 90s did quite a bit, which is trying to launch something across multiple mediums. Star Wars did it with Shadows of the Empire, with an album, with a book, with a tie-in comic, with a video game. Kiss did it with their album Psycho Circus, which also had tie-in comic, tie-in toys and other things. And I think Mortal it's... Kombat. Mortal Kombat did it. And I just think it, it Shadows of the Empire, I think, could be a fascinating one to do a little bit of a deep dive into when we get to it, which is sometime next year. And by next year, I mean 1996. I think. Yeah, we'll probably be there by like October. Oh, time's weird, mate. But even though he's met the guy and had a lovely sit-down conversation with him, Dom still gets a jab in at Mark Hamill, even though he's not the star of this game. I know. Very, very unfair. Um, Speaking of unfair, and you can tell that this is, you know, looking at footage from a trailer as opposed to playing the actual game, because Goldeneye on the Nintendo 64, Dominic's only comment on it is, it looks like Virtua Cop. Given we are in the early era of 3D shoot-em-ups with 3D polygonal characters... I can kind of see where the comparison's coming from. And also, at one point, Goldeneye was going to be potentially an on-rail shooter. The um, I think it's the bunker level was even designed originally with a singular path to go through it because it was the first level they built and the one they built when it was still a first-person shooter. But it's also nowhere near a launch title. I mean, as you said, we do not see this game until what is it 97 yeah 97 i think we get this i think tomorrow never dies is almost out in cinemas by the time we actually get golden on the end it might actually be past that by the time we actually get the game but i mean they were working on it all the way through the production of golden eyes the film because they visited the set they visited the studios they got access to drawing so it was a long old production element even though they did end up piggybacking the launch of golden eye off the back of tomorrow never dies it was worth the wait it was a seminal game for so many reasons. I think the four-player split-screen multiplayer is why a lot of people remember it. I don't think it's as good a game as people remember, and I may get crucified on that. Nope, I, I think you're right on that. I think nostalgia plays a big part in people's love for GoldenEye. Like, when you talk about the N64, the three games that tend to get brought up the most 
uh, whenever I, I should say whenever I've brought up the N64 like online or anything the three games that tend to get brought up the most are Mario 64 GoldenEye and No Mercy and I would argue that GoldenEye is of the three is the one that has aged the worst it's aged the, the it's, it's aged the most poorly it's not to say that it's a bad game but it is a game that you know titles would massively improve upon it later in life and going back to it, it is quite a clunky game to play. I think the great thing about it is, like, it's that four-player multiplayer. Like, that's the thing that really holds it above, head and shoulders above a lot of other titles on the N64. That, and, like, if you're a James Bond fan, it is a game that celebrates not just Goldmine, but the films that came before it and all of the other ba- Bond baddies and stuff. And I think that is a lot of fun for it. Amazingly, and I think, as I did mention, I did actually go back recently and play GoldenEye Reloaded, the kind of like semi-modern Daniel Craig reskinned remake. That was a lot of fun. That still felt a bit clunky compared to like modern shooters. But I I actually found it pretty enjoyable. Certainly it's more enjoyable as a single player experience than I would find playing N64 GoldenEye. Golden, GoldenEye multiplayer... It's who you play it with. But as a single player experience, I don't think GoldenEye for the N64 is as good as the memory often says it is. And I'm saying that as someone that loves the N64 and loved GoldenEye and used to, you know, go around to a friend's house and play multiplayer GoldenEye. Like, I think even there was a guy I went to school with where we used to occasionally pile into his car because it was around that time, you know, end of A-levels and all that. And we went off and we played GoldenEye at his gaff and it was great. My memories of GoldenEye aren't quite as strong. Like, my friend had GoldenEye and we would play multiplayer. The problem was, is that my friend was the only one of us that had Nintendo 64 and a copy of GoldenEye, which means that he was just better than anyone else at it because him and his brother played it all the time. And we weren't playing it all the time, which means that when we went over, like, after school or, you know, on the weekend and stuff, he would just completely destroy us. And it was never a, we never got good at the game, like to be able to sort of compete against him. So I never had the full nostalgic multiplayer fun for GoldenEye that I think a lot of people did. Yeah. Up next, we got Body Harvest, which did come out. Yeah, it was another game that was intended to be a launch title, but was delayed due to Nintendo having issues with the game's violent themes. And basically, they dropped the game. They were like, yeah, we were going to publish this, but turns out a game called Body Harvest is actually quite violent, Luke. Who would have thunk it, eh? And it was eventually published by Midway and Gremlin Interactive in 1998. So a hell of a delay on that one. Well, I'm sure it'll be a much shorter delay than Creator which I'm pretty certain isn't actually a game. This feels like a tech demo. I'm from... Uh, uh, it's complicated. Let's put it as it's complicated. This may have been a tech demo. This may have been an early concept, but it was eventually meant to be part of a new kind of Mario artist series, which were going to be for the Nintendo 64 DD. So Nintendo kind of wanted to continue with the Mario Painter, the... Mario Artist series for the Nintendo 64 and they had lots of different options. They were looking to create an entire suite so there'd be one for animation, for music, for this, that and the other. But what we see here as creator was originally meant to be a single product, a sequel to Mario Paint in 3D for the N64. And I think 
to hazard a guess, the reason why it never saw the light of day in it, in this form for the Nintendo 64 is where the hell do you save the models? With the 64DD, it's a little bit more plausible because you've got the disk drive. Up next was Star Fox 64. And speaking of controversial views, Dom never really liked the original because of course he didn't. It was popular. I love Star Fox 64. I think we've covered it before. It's my favourite. Although... Star Fox 64 3D for the 3DS is my favorite iteration of Star Fox 64. I just, I can sit and blast through that game in a single sitting, and I just love being able to do that. Similarly, I go back and forth between Ocarina of Time, Link to the Past, and Link's Awakening as my favorite of the Legend of Zelda games. Here it's just titled Legend of Zelda 64. You know, Dom saying this is the sequel to possibly the greatest game of all time. Presumably, I think he's talking about Link to the Past there. Um, But this is like... I struggle between the three of them, picking out which of them is my favourite. It probably just depends on what day you ask me. Although what you see here, which is from like kind of the Ocarina of Time development cycle, is just a tech demo because they were still developing the prototypes for Ocarina of Time. And then there was Space World 95 coming up and they're like, we need to kind of show something off. So they basically knocked up a one-on-one fighting game and a little demo of Link fighting a metallic character with using all the kind of floating lighting effects and particle effects and environment mapping and all these bits and pieces. And it was it was just there. It didn't really have any real bearing on the Zelda that we got. It didn't have any bearing on Ocarina of Time or Majora's Mask or anything like that. But it did kind of go... We're going to do a Zelda. It was that's it was a exactly statement it, of yeah. intent. That that's all it's there to be because this looks nothing like the game we eventually do get. Like the character model is completely off, but it was just very much a case of yeah, we're going to be doing one of these. Get excited. This Pamela Anderson of a console is due for release next spring with a target price of 200 quid. Four controller ports come as standard on the machine, but perhaps the most interesting aspect of the hardware is the controller itself. An obvious innovation is the central 3D stick, which allows precision 360 degree movement. It also controls the speed of the character, both essential tools for negotiating the next generation of 3D games. And because it's all 3D, different views can be chosen by pressing any of the four yellow buttons. The controller is covered in fire buttons as well. Cheeky left ones, cheeky right ones, and downright saucy underneath ones. With gameplay as complex as this, it's no surprise the controller also features a memory card, which enables you to save game positions and customise controller settings. Little wonder then that much of the excitement surrounding the machine quite literally comes from the gaming possibilities offered by it. But really, like, the big appeal of this, like, that was, you know, very cool to see all of those tech demos and, and this, that, and the other, and all of the trailers and whatnot. But it's the, you know, Dom talking about the fact that it's 200 quid. And considering, you know, the debacle that we talked about recently with the Sega Saturn launch and how expensive that is, at 200 quid, crikey, that does feel like a very enticing prospect. It does, doesn't it? And and also something which became, I think, standard for a while for Nintendo We've got the four players. We've yeah. got the four joypad ports. There's four ports. Also, that analog stick, not you know, which wasn't on the PlayStation, was not on the Saturn, allowing for pure 3D movement. It feels like the console of the future. Granted, it granted it does come out in its own cartridges, which feels like a massive step back. But like here, it just it feels so next gen. 
We spend quite a bit of time covering the controller here because it is the thing they've got quite a bit of footage of and it is actually the most revolutionary aspect of the Nintendo 64 other than their decision to stick on cartridge. And so, yeah, we see the 3D stick, we see it's got a D-pad, we see it's got firing buttons all over the place, including a cheeky little hidden one on that centre stick. It's the yellow direction buttons that always get me because I know what they were meant to be used for. We saw in Mario 64 what they were meant to be used for and some of those other early games also used them for that camera angle control. But then development continued and they just became another button. It's weird, isn't it? Like they were put there almost for Mario 64 and then, you know, given it to developers to be like, and now you can use it for similar things. And they were like, no. I think when it comes to wrestling games, we're just going to use it as a different, like there'll be taunts or it's just a different button for the grappling system. Yeah, we use it for for extra functions like climb the top turnbuckle and stuff like that, because that's what I think about it on. I mean, I've got my uh, Retrobit brawl pad wireless here, which is easily the best way to play a Nintendo 64 game or particularly No Mercy mods on the PC. And even on this, they've still got the kind of yellow direction buttons in their traditional position and traditional, I guess, size, but just to click them, they click much more like the A and B buttons. They've got much more of a tactile response and they're, it's great to work with. But I do remember them being quite fiddly at times on the Nintendo 64 and it being quite easy to hit the wrong button, particularly yeah. if you were in the middle of like a Royal Rumble. It's like, you know, the, they are the C buttons as well. It's up C, down C, left C, right C, and that will continue into the GameCube when it becomes the C stick. We also talk a little bit about the fact that this uh, controller has a memory card slot on the underneath. And I just actually want to duck back to Goldeneye because also in addition to the memory card going in there, you did get other additions, including most infamously the Rumble Pack. And if I remember correctly, it was either the Rumble Pack or actually the memory card that Rare were originally positing you use to reload weapons. So they were basically going to go, cool, to reload your gun, you need to pull out the Rumble Pack and put it back in. And Nintendo were like, no, that is a class action suit. And the last thing we want is Nintendo is a class action suit relating to controller design. That will never happen on our watch. So after a year of leaving the next generation field open to Sony and Sega, the biggest video games company in the world is poised for a truly formidable comeback. Admittedly, the games themselves, costing 60 quid, are well behind schedule. But from what we've seen so far, it looks like when it finally arrives in April, the Ultra 64 will be quite smart as it happens. And Dom's final line here, where he's talking about the fact that the last year has been dominated by Sony and Sega, could now be beaten by Nintendo when it arrives in April. I mean, it gets to Japan in June, but we're not going to get this for a long old time. March 1997, we'll be waiting for an entire year and a bit. We're still like 18 months away from the release of this in the UK. They gave their opponents a year's lead and they're going to give them, as, as you just said, they're going to give them a lot more than a year before it really becomes meaningful for the West. It's been so weird looking at games companies make mistakes, particularly in hindsight. We've talked a lot about Sega. We've talked about what Panasonic should or shouldn't have done with the 3DO format. Atari just being fucking weird. And then we're seeing Nintendo also make mistakes and continue to make mistakes and just letting the lead get away from them. And here's the thing. If you look at the three main consoles of this console generation war, PlayStation, N64, Saturn. Saturn still comes bottom. Mm -hmm. But that's not necessarily because Nintendo 64 was better. 
It's because Sega fucked up first. That's exactly it. Like they were poor off the mark before they had even come out. Like they completely biffed it from day dot of the Saturn launch. So even though they had a two year lead, nearly three year lead on the N64, they still lose out to it. And, you know, we're looking at all those games there and most of them don't come out until like 1998. And yet here we are looking at them in 1995. There's so much with the N64, the DD and all this sort of stuff. There's so much interesting stuff around the N64 that was, it took forever to come. It doesn't quite get there. It's not quite how we expected it. It becomes a very fascinating machine. Uh, with the benefits of hindsight. The sun sets on another Games Master, and I leave you with this thought. Life is a bit like a telephone call. It's great until you try to chat up someone who's engaged. Goodbye. That's a very, very fun line. That's a very fun outro line for this episode. Top tier, five out of five. But that brings us to the end of this episode, Ash, episode 11, a very different one that we've had in series five thus far. Um because it felt very series four very series four in a way of just last minute in the editing booth we've made it in a completely different episode to the one that was intended to be released and i think for me for the most part it's it's good but it really does live and die by that n64 feature yeah there was the news yeah there was the reviews but really it's that feature like i feel that even in the editing bay they were like, this is the most important thing. This needs to be the best bit of the episode. And that's where all of the focus and attention goes on to. Because the challenge, which takes up a good chunk of the episode, mm. is really, really bad. And I'm curious to find out where you sit with this episode, particularly score-wise, because I'm struggling of where I'm scoring this. Because while that N64 feature is really, really great, I'm not overly bothered by a lot of the rest. I, I I like the reviews. It was also really kind of like nice to see some good some good positive love for the Saturn. Despite the reservations about the dig not being funny enough, it was good that it still got an 88%. I'd have put it a bit higher, but that's just me. I think what bugs me the most about the challenge is how it affects the pace. Because we start, boom, hard cut to news, boom, boom, boom. We're hitting all these notes. Reviews, boom, boom. We're not wasting time. Challenge, boom kind of a fun setup questionable story about being a terrorist and then we get to the actual challenge itself and it's like everyone's had their oval teen everyone's had their horlicks and they're kind of putting on their carpet slippers and it's just slow yeah and i and i find that even in the first half like it is a hard cut to the news and then it's sort of almost again like a hard cut through to the reviews it just feels like it's dawdling it feels like it is like not wasting time but just <sighs> Yeah, stalling, I think it might be the better word, the word I'm after. It just feels like it's stalling to get to the feature at the end. And I think it does create a weird pace for the episode. And it, I don't think it's one that I would hugely recommend people watch if they haven't. And just basically, if, you, if you're watching on YouTube, skip to the end and just watch the N64 feature. Last four minutes. Yeah. Last four and a half minutes. Because those, those last four, four minutes are brilliant and fascinating but this is a 22-minute show, and I don't think the other 18 minutes really muster up. Score-wise, ah. It's tough, isn't it? It's really hard. I find this one very hard to score. If I was reviewing this without the N64 feature at the end, it would be low 60s. It's not bad. It's just not anything. 
Yeah. It's bought the, the challenge, you know, Devil Devil's Advocate, the challenge, while Mel is terrible at the game, its biggest crime is it's boring. Um so if I'm looking at low sixties without the N sixty four feature at the end, what boost does that N sixty four feature give it? Because it's not insubstantial. It's it's historically important and quite exciting, particularly not only for the games that we see in different forms, but for the games we never see. And for me, they got it first. Yeah. Like this is four days removed from this happening in Japan, like, you know, the far away world of Japan. And we're seeing it tea time on Channel 4 in the UK four days later. That to me is really significant. And that is why I'm trying to decide how much of a bump that gives my also fairly low 60s without it. And I think I, because we've always said 75% is our recommend. Like, you know, the same with the review scores, 75% feels like a good recommend. Is it enough to bump it over the 75 or does it still fall short? I, I'm i with you in that I would say if you're going to watch this episode, just make sure you watch the last four minutes. That's, that's the thing, to which to me means this is not an over 75% episode because we're not saying watch the episode, we're saying watch a bit of the episode. I'm thinking flat 70. Yeah, I think flat 70 works. I think that is the fairest score for this. I really would like to score at 64% because I think it would be apropos, but I think it is better than that. Maybe. Oh, how about this? We rate the episode without the N64 news and feature as 6%, and the boost it gets from the N64 content is 64%, meaning Uh, 70% overall. Yeah, maybe we'll go along those lines. Just absolutely fudge it to get the 64 gag in there somewhere. But I think that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. You all rule. You can find us on social media, on Twitter at underconsolepod, on Instagram at under.console, and you can send us an email to feedback at underconsultation.com. And if you want to join us for a bit of real-time interaction, real-time feedback, chat with us, chat with other members of the Under Console Nation, you can do so over on our Discord. Details of that can be found in our show notes. And if you want to support this podcast monetarily, you can do so over at patreon.com forward slash under console pod where at the five pound level you'll get next week's episode one week early and ad free you'll also get access to ucp extra which is this show format but about other tv shows from the 80s and 90s and our monthly community show under console nation at the 10 pound level you will get a little bit extra ash what do they get they will get the under consultation patreon pack version 2.0 with a new mug stickers new badges retro sweeties and fox kids retro trading cards featuring such series as the amazing spider-man x-men the tick and others and a shout out to those 10 pound backers xanderthal william tom simon sean retro fun for everyone reese paul nick misha matty boo mark link kevin jamie ian harriet Mankagel, gordon dempster gordon brantz david palmer david fisher darkside 73 cliff chrissy two sticks arcadia wild bill andy Andrew Cummings and Adam D. Thank you all so much for listening. We will see you in seven days' time for episode 12 of series five. Take care, everyone. Good night.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.